Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Artificial is a film about wild rivers and wild fish. It explores the high cost ecologically, financially, and culturally of our mistaken belief that engineered solutions can make up for habitat destruction. Artificial traces the impact of fish hatcheries and farms and the extraordinary amount of taxpayer dollars wasted on an industry that hinders wild fish recovery, pollutes rivers, and contributes to the problem it claims to solve. And that is the backstory behind this wonderful and important documentary film, one that you will not be able to walk away from without reassessing everything you thought you knew about our food production, about the way that we are, quote-unquote, taking care of the environment, and many other issues. And the film is called Artificial, and just for the sake of our audience, I want to spell it out because it's not how you would assume it to be. A-R-T-I-F-I-S-H-A-L, Artificial. And we're joined by the director of the film, and that would be Josh Murphy. Josh, welcome to Film School. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be able to talk about film anytime. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time. And this film, uh, it certainly opened my eyes uh, to a lot of things that I assumed were different than they are. And in reality, uh, I have spent, I lived in the mountains. I've spent a lot of time in the, you know, in the, in nature, if you will. Uh, I've been to Alaska, seen one of my uh, distant relatives is involved in a fishery in Alaska. And it all comes off as very much the way things should be. And then you watch your film and you realize, well, that isn't exactly how it, how it is. So talk to us a little bit about how you got into this particular subject of fisheries and the and the and native species, and this is and your decision to move forward making to make a documentary about it. Well, when I was a kid, I, I, I recount this funny story that I wanted to be one of two things: either a professional hockey player, and I'm about five six, one fifty, so never quite reached the brute <laughs> status, <laughs> or or Jacques Cousteau, and Cousteau had captured my imagination because he took us to places that we couldn't go. And I always thought of him as an explorer and a scientist. And I went into science specifically for that because I kind of, if, if I was going to live that dream, I figured that was the way to get there. So I, I earned two degrees in wildlife fisheries biology, first from the University of Vermont, and then a master's from fish, in fisheries biology for, from Humboldt State University in Northern California. And I, oddly enough, uh, before my, my graduate degree program, I actually worked on a fish farm in Ireland because I wanted to see how it worked. And then while I was uh, in graduate school, I managed an on-campus hatchery, uh, which was run by my major professor, and he offered me that job as a way to pay for, for my graduate degree. And so I kind of started to learn this, this issue from the inside out, but that was way back then. And funny enough, after I finished school, I was still pursuing this kind of career in, in skiing, which was I was a sponsored and, and professional skier for some time and then wanted to make film because as an author, they say, write what you know. And as a filmmaker, I figured, well, I should just film what I know. And that was just filming these, these knuckleheads <laughs> I skied with <laughs> as a way to, 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 to try to learn filmmaking. 
And I started making films on 16 millimeter film. And a friend of mine who had made ski movies literally told me how to load the camera. And he said, you see this little dial up front? If it's sunny outside, put it on like 16 or 22. And if it's cloudy, put it on like 16 or 8. <laughs> and I said, okay, great. And I had a little wind up Bolex. And I just could take that into the mountains and, and blaze away. But it also, because it was film, made me uh, kind of decide uh, with restraint how to film. And so I started making ski movies kind of on a whim, but always wanting to get back to making film. It had been an interest, and um, that was successful enough that I made five ski movies over six years, and that kind of began my career in film. And the funny thing is that I realized a little bit later that Cousteau's real legacy was as a filmmaker. That was what he first and foremost did. I mean, he certainly innovated the, the scuba self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, he, he helped develop that system. But then once he was done with developing that, he said, well, we need to bring cameras down and show people this magical world. And it was really kind of funny for me to recognize how much that informed what I was doing. And I, did, I didn't even quite, kind of know that. Uh, and then fast forward 20 years later, or thereabouts, uh, I was filming a piece for 1% for the Planet, which is a nonprofit that was established by uh, Patagonia founder Yvonne Chouinard and Craig Matthews, a friend of his, and they were hoping to encourage people, businesses specifically, to give back 1% of their gross profits to grassroots activist uh, organizations that make change. And they had started that about 15 years ago, and I believe they've raised about $150 million so far. And we were just kind of sitting down to, kind of, to, to, to hear what their perspectives were over the last 15 years. And it was very informal, uh, very personable interview on the back of a pickup truck in Montana. And over lunch, somebody said to Yvonne, hey, you know, what's your next film? I know Patagonia is doing more films. And he said in, in perfect Yvonne uh, way, he said, well, we're making a film about the arrogance of man. And all of us kind of turned to say, well, you know, where is this going to go? And he said, it's, it's the way we're unwilding salmon by how we continue to try to control nature and manipulate nature. And, of course, I nearly dropped my sandwich in my lap and <laughs> said, I, you know, I know a couple things about this. I was also the co-producer of a feature film called The River Y, which is an adaptation of a classic novel uh, that actually is kind of a coming-of-age uh, story about a boy who grows up as a fishing prodigy. And it had a, a couple of Oscar winners and nominees in it. Uh, Zach Guilford was the lead uh, Amber Heard was the, the co-star uh, who you know, recently was married to Johnny Depp and now has gone on to quite, quite a bit of other fame. Yes. And that was a number of years ago. And I had told him that over lunch. And I told him this other work I'd done over lunch. And at the end of the day, he said, D can you give me your info? And I didn't have a card or anything. So I scribbled on a piece of paper and handed it to him. And he said, hell, be in touch. And I remember thinking, yeah, I've heard that so many times. So, <laughs> so many times people say, we want to do a film. I'll be in touch. And I said, you know, I like to laugh and say, if I... If I had a dollar for every time that happened, I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> but uh, in classic Patagonia form, two days later, his producer called and said, Yvonne wants to know if you would make this film. And I said, I would be honored to, but what is it? And he said, well, that's what we need to find out. And so that launched a two and a half year journey into making artificial and really pulling together a film that I think, uh, as, as Cousteau did, takes people to a place they didn't know about. And perhaps uh, if we did our job, it takes them to a place they may not want to return to when they recognize 
the effects that we continue to have on, on the environment and specifically on this icon of wild, which is salmon. Yeah, and it's I, I'm so glad you brought Jacques Cousteau into this conversation, and that's in the in the sense that yes, we all think of him as this scientist who opened our eyes to the world in which we live, particularly the oceans and the and the damage being done to the oceans and our our impact on it as uh, mankind's impact on it. But you're right; he <laughs> he he. We know him because of the films that he yeah. he was responsible for making. Whether he was a producer or he was, you know, to whatever level he was involved in the actual filmmaking itself, he certainly had a big part in it. And he also certainly helped de develop or foster the development of technologies that have, have actually been great for filmmaking and for and for techniques in order to tell these stories. So I'm glad that, you know, that's an, it's interesting because I, th I think of him as a scientist, but you're right. And. Well, let's move moving forward from that particular observation. Yeah. Uh, and that is, so what you were talking about with Yvonne was that uh, this sort of the way into the story. What was that and to determine what that was and that that would open up the, the, the film to all these other issues that come along with it. Was there a particular thing that you wanted to focus? I mean, obviously, the film focuses on hatcheries. Yeah. There's more to it than that, but that's certainly for me the the takeaway is the impact that they're having. But was that what was that particular point or part of the film that we see in artificial that was your gateway into this into these all these issues? Well, it's a very telling question, and thanks thanks for asking it because uh, that's probably the the piece that I like to talk about the least because when we began the film, we hadn't quite found out. We did lots and lots of research, but hadn't found out a kind of storytelling mode, as, as I like to say. Because if you look at a lot of films of this ilk, you know, there's, there's the story of telling the story. So if you look at films like uh, Chasing Coral mm -hmm. or um, The Cove, you're, 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 the story is about the filmmakers finding the story. So it's a story within a story. And then you look at other films, and they are like Damnation. They're interview-driven where the filmmakers then become part of the story and they take part in furthering the narrative that's being explored and so we kind of my my, my partner colin kreiner who's my partner in liars and thieves our production company who's who's the editor of the film nyu grad just a spectacular filmmaker himself he and i for quite some time kept saying well how do we get there and we decided at the beginning to just research and then start asking lots of questions. So we had a list of, of characters, many of whom were scientists, who, by the way, can be terrible, terrible characters, <laughs> but very learned people. And so we started just doing pre-interviews and tried to look for that way in. And then we started to do actual interviews. And we kept finding that people were kind of, I use the word squishy. It didn't have a really determined POV, point of view. And that was wholly frustrating for, for us because... We kept wondering, well, you know, without anybody having a firm stance on the issue, how do we how do we develop the story where we don't tell it? Because we were adamant from the beginning that we didn't want to tell it. We didn't want to write narration. We wanted to have the characters tell it. We realized as we researched more that many people didn't want to talk about it because either they didn't know about it, so they didn't feel like they could, or they knew about it and they realized that they didn't want to talk about it because of the implications, perhaps professionally or personally, and that it was just too nuanced for people to, to speak about. And mm. so 
halfway through the, the film, really honestly halfway through when we were kind of questioning whether or not we had a really good film, uh, our producer, Laura Wagner, who is spectacular, she read a piece from Ira Glass, the, the host of This American Life. And he said his process is when he's confronted with stories of which he has to move through a whole bunch of them very quickly. He keeps reading until he finds what he called the moment of joy, and which was that piece, which was the angle into the story. And he waits to find that angle to say, what is this? Hold on a second. If, if it's being confronted or confounded or just finding some quirky kind of story that, that he didn't know existed, that's what he uses as his, as his entry into the, the piece. And so we kind of stepped back and said, well, what do we have here? And we realized we had this amalgamation of just completely ridiculous moments where stepping back from the reality of the issue and just looking at it as if you dropped in from outer space, you'd recognize that what we are doing to try to control salmon uh, is just plain ridiculous. And it falls into this idea that we constructed, which was that once we adopt a, a, a belief that technology is the solution rather than allowing nature to be the solution to natural problems, that we will go to no ends to try to reinforce that narrative. And so uh, we looked back and saw the, some of the footage we had. And we had all these other possible stories. And we just said, all right, drop everything. Start just exploring those things that are ridiculous. And all of a sudden, the film came came alive. And we, the first thing we found was this video of this forklift lifting up a block of frozen salmon that had returned to a hatchery and had their eggs and milk, which is sperm, stripped from them and then frozen. And then they freeze it into a, a tote, which is a box. And then they put that box onto a forklift and they drop it from the top of the forklift, like 15 feet up. And this pile of salmon explodes, icy salmon bits fly everywhere and then they hand those to kids to walk into rivers to throw back into the river to help with what salmon would normally do which is provide nutrients to the river and we thought this is crazy yeah there's indoctrination of children in this and there's this just amazing visual of watching a block of <laughs> salmon land on the concrete and just explode and what what does that mean for for the way that we interact with nature and what does that mean for what we think we can do in trying to use our technologies rather than allow them to do what they know how to do? And that then spawned all of these other just findings of other specific instances where it just became very apparent visually that what we were doing made no sense. And right. that's what the film became. Right. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Josh Murphy. He is the director of a film, a documentary film called Artificial, and that's A-R-T-I-F-I-S-H-A-L, Artificial. You can find out more about it at Patagonia.com. They, they have a, a, a website not only dedicated to their commerce, but also as well as the films that they are producing now, which is... Um, again, I just recently interviewed the director of the film, The Serengeti Rules, and this is another film in the Patagonia catalog of films, Artificial. So um, I want to tip my hat to them for making films that matter and also making films that are not only informative, not only infuriating, but also empowering. 
and we'll get to that in 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 the course of our conversation here, Josh. But I but I I I think it's important to point out that that particular anecdote, that part of the film that you mentioned comes fairly late in the film but it is all of the elements that are leading us into this aha moment or this absurdist moment that you just just described there are a lot of things in this film there are the hatchery issues there are the damming of our rivers issues there are the disappearance of species the south i want to make sure i get it right the southern whale Southern resident killer whale. Southern resident killer whale that is disappearing along with uh, types of salmon. There's a whole bunch of things going on here, but there are also within this film the ways out, the ways out of this crazy. And before we get to that part as well, let's talk just about the amounts of money. Well, you take us where you want to go because you've described that part and then sort of and I don't want you to give away the whole film here, but I just sure, want you sure. to kind of give us the highlights so that we know what what these other issues are in in that are addressed in artificial. Yeah, well, we we took uh, the approach, which I think is one based on science and fact and and kind of basic understanding that that ecosystems in the world are all interconnected, and when you pull on the fabric of one, you can unravel the other. And I think the, the overriding idea that Yvonne had, had asked, which was to explore the arrogance of man, was the thing that kept us focused on what the larger story was, and that this really was, was a, a lens through which we understand more about the, the, the folly of humans and our belief in ourselves. And so when we kind of started to pick apart this belief system that we had given up our faith in nature instead relying on human technologies, it became easier and easier to tell the story. And so within that, uh, as you were just mentioning, we begin to realize just how much money that we've had kind of put forward towards perpetuating this false narrative. And in some places like the Columbia River, which is between Oregon and Washington, and which drains an area the size of France and has huge, huge hydroelectric uh, dams, some of which that brought that they reach from side to side of the entire river, huge river, now have been spending upwards of six billion dollars since 1985 on the recovery, specifically through hatcheries of salmon, but more broadly, 15 billion dollars on the recovery of salmon in general. So they're spending 15 billion, of which six billion is only hatcheries, and the fish are not returning. And so now this is the most expensive recovery of any species ever in mankind's history, and it's not working. And why do we continue to do that? And I keep coming back to because we believe in story, and story is a powerful motivator. If you look at, at, at religion, it's story. If you look at the reason we dedicate ourselves to, to country, it's story of patriotism. Story is the thing that motivates humans. And when we believe in stories that then we find out may be false, we're loath to let go of that narrative until we recognize, hopefully, that by remaining in step with that narrative, dire consequences can happen. And that's really, you know, the, the tagline for artificial is the road to extinction is paved with good intentions. Yeah. And that's really what the, the film explores, which is that, we keep thinking we're doing good by applying our technology to this. 
yeah. and we're watching it fail. And so only when we let go of that story and say, you know, nature has an amazing ability to heal if we are able to restore the infrastructure streams, for example, the natural infrastructure, if we're able to put our money to use and our technology use in restoring ecosystems, then allow nature to do its amazing work of finding out how best to proceed within that restored ecosystem. Because only then do we kind of allow the full expression of what has made the world like it is now until we have had such a huge outside impact on it. Yeah. One of the things I learned in watching the Serengeti Rules and in your film as well is that nature's predisposition, nature's go-to move is to restore itself. It seeks to do what we are in a misguided way trying to achieve. It does it on its own. And that's the good news. Now, whether or not we're going to allow it to do that is another question because in the film we get into sort of, you know, as we often do, we get into sort of big money interest, people who have a particular, some skin in the game in terms of their financial, um, financially speaking. But, and we also have government overreach. We have a lot of things. And it's like these people are not paying attention to what the experts are and and the facts on the ground are telling them because it's just... The story, as you describe yeah. it, it's the story. We be- we want to believe that we can engineer nature, that we can bend it to our our needs and desires without ever considering beyond that particular, that very ham-fisted sort of approach, what we may or may not actually be able to do. And that's what, to me, the 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 uh, among the many um, lessons to be learned from the film Artificial. Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting because I've said to a couple of people, you know, with all of the technology that we have, we've pe- put people into space, we've made these amazing advances in computing, in, to some extent, personal health care, I mean, the, the, what we can now do in health, huge advances. But with all of that, we still cannot build a flower. Right. We, there are things that are beyond our technologic ability to do. Right. And people have to recognize that, that there are places for technology, but there are also places for wild. Right. And I use wild to use kind of more broadly the idea of allowing nature to do what it does. And what's interesting is that if you look at, you know, early 1900s, when we started making some of the decisions on how we would manage, I'm using air quotes, manage wildlife, one of the things we did was to encourage refuges for waterfowl, like ducks and geese. Mm-hmm. There was actually a, a, a hatchery program that was proposed and begun to try to replenish ducks and geese that had been hunted to near extinction in some places. And also we were filling in wetlands to, for, for development of agricultural and, and for cities and for building, etc. And so we were attacking the habitats that, that supported ducks and geese. And we made a decision then that we would allow refuges, which was to say, we're not going to bother them. We're going to let nature do its work within that spot. And at the same time, we began the process of really undertaking this, this industrialization of salmon through, through fish hatcheries, which could also be called fish factories by some. So we said in one, we'll allow nature to do it, and the other will do it. And what's interesting is that if you look at the, the population of ducks and geese since the early 1900s, they're higher than they ever have been. Yeah. And yet in fish, we continue to see this collapse. And if not collapse, 
than what we're doing through the, the manufacturing of fish and releasing them into into the wild, which is the only animal we do anywhere in the world at scale. I cannot find another naturalist or scientist that can, can note another animal that we do this with. But when doing that, we're actually masking the effects that we would otherwise see. So we are basically you know, trading wild fish for artificial fish. Right. And when you look at the cost of doing that, both you know, monetarily but also ecologically, yeah. are we setting ourselves up to do that forever? So for the next 50, 100, 700 years, right. is that our job now? Right. Is just to make fish. Right. And that seems very odd to me that we wouldn't recognize how silly that is and recognize that there are huge benefits if we can allow nature to do its work and us to step out of it. I am I'm so grateful for your film for artificial for a lot of reasons one of which it's a very enjoyable watch in the sense of a cinematic experience you get some wonderful people involved in describing what the what the issues are no one is over the top everyone is very measured in the way that they're talking about these issues and about the impact and of different aspects of this question of can man i mean it's sort of the frankenstein question isn't it i mean in some way and so it, so that's and we refuse to believe that nature actually seems to have a place in all of this, or at least we are we refuse to allow the the degree. And there are some measures that have been taken. Governor Brown's uh, signed some legislation here in California to get get rid of dams along. I forgot which river we're talking about right now. Um, which river did we are we undamming? The, yeah, the Klamath. The Klamath. The Klamath River. Yeah. Well, interesting story about that, too. So the Klamath River is in northern California. It's very close to the Oregon border. And right now it's proposed to remove four dams on the Klamath River because they never allowed migratory fish, which salmon are. They begin in freshwater. They go to the ocean and come back two to five years later back to the very stream, sometimes within a couple of meters of where they were born. And so dams prohibited that, that migration. And what they did, because they believed in this story of hatcheries, is they put the dam in and they put the, the hatchery right at the bottom because they knew they were destroying the natural run. So they were just going to replace it with this agricultural model. Huh. And so now when the dams are removed, we're hoping that they will also remove the hatcheries so that the, 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 the river yeah. can actually recover. Yeah. That's not exactly what the state would like to do right now. Right. And so we have a bit of an issue with that. What's, what's wholly interesting, though, is that historically, on the West Coast, lower 48 West Coast, three major rivers produced the most salmon. And that was the Columbia River, which we were just talking about, which is in huge trouble. And then the Sacramento River, which goes right through under the Golden Gate River, basically, under the Golden Gate Bridge is where the river exits its mouth really, and then it goes through the town of Sacramento and then into all of the Sierra Nevada. And that used to be a huge place for the production of salmon. And that's in dire straits because of what we've done with agriculture and cities and growth. So we have to kind of weigh out what we do going forward. The Klamath was the third. And now the Klamath may have the opportunity to become the biggest producer of salmon on the West Coast. And without hatcheries, as it restores itself, we hope that it could become the biggest producer of wild salmon. And wild salmon is unique. I mean, when we buy salmon at a market and we call, we call it wild caught, it's often not wild. In yeah. fact, rarely right. in the lower 48, if you're buying it from somewhere in Oregon, 
California or Washington, right. is that fish wild? It began in the hatchery because the rivers are so degraded that it can't support the earliest forms of life oh for salmon. Yeah. And so the Klamath is this shining opportunity to actually allow us to invigorate what is wild yeah. and allow salmon to return to a river that is more intact than probably any other river of its side of its size on the west coast. Well, that it, let's end on a, a note of, of positive note here in terms of uh, not only um, your film makes a, makes some very strong points about how we can get through all of this, but also that's good news and in a sort of not not a fully fully realized way, but certainly sure. a step in the right direction. Um, yeah. Once again, I just want to let people know they can find out about by going to the patagonia.com backslash artificial, A-R-T-I-F-I-S-H-A-L to find out more about this film. And there's also all kinds of good information there as well in terms of finding out about what more about these issues, but how you can actually get involved and also how you can host a screening here. Uh, so there, it's great stuff. It's great stuff, not only in the film, but it's also on this website at Patagonia. And uh, I could direct people to your website, uh, liarsandthieves.tv, yep. and uh, find out more about your work as well. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, they, oh, go ahead, please. I thank, I thank you because, you know, as I've said, as a filmmaker, we now make films that have to compete with every film ever made. Right. because it's all available online. And we also have to compete with all eight seasons of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and so how do, we, yeah. how do we provide a message to people to watch a film and say it's, it's, it's worth the time? And that podcasts like yours and other places that have said, hey, this is an interesting film, help that. It helps us as filmmakers to, to reinforce stories, but it helps, helps us, I believe, as, as human citizens, if you will, uh, to take action where it's important and where they feel so moved. Well, Josh Murphy, thank you. Thank you so much for the film. Thank you so much for finding time to be here today on Film School Radio. We will be tracking this. We'll stay on top of this. And uh, there are a ton of screenings coming up. And I love the fact that these screenings are kind of rolling across the country in places where there's a lot of fishing being done. There's sort of a there's sort of a mountain-esque ex experience going on here uh, in terms of looking at the schedule uh, all over the country in Colorado, Vermont, Washington, Canada, Ontario. Uh, we're looking at a lot of different places, Salt Lake City. So it's getting the word to the communities that are impacted uh, by this, but also you as a listener can, can jump in and be a part of this as well by going to the artificial at, um, website on patagonia.com. And you can see here artificial at, motion, at picturemotion.com is a way of getting yourself into hosting a screening wherever you might be, wherever you might be hearing the sound of our voices here. So uh, thank you for all of yeah, this. That, that, okay, go ahead. That really makes me excited. I mean, we've had over 500 screenings that have popped up through this, this site where you can host a, a community screening, and that means people care. And I, and I really do hope that the film allows people to see fish as wildlife, yeah. not just as food or fun, that they're an integral part of our, of our world and of our ecosystems that support other populations of wildlife, like the southern resident killer whale, but also humans. Yeah. And once we recognize that the role that, that, that fish and water and freshwater fish play in our society, I think we'll, we'll, we'll want to make some different decisions going forward. I, I certainly think you're right, and I think we will. 
I think we will. And it's just how much damage are we going to uh, endure before we, we finally make the, the right decisions. Well, Josh, Josh Murphy, thank you again for being here on Film School Radio. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.